want to remind everybody that we are back to our normal schedule this week. Wednesday night Bible class is now on Wednesday night. Spent the last three nights, or three nights of the week, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, at Holy Trinity Missionary Baptist Church in Houston, and they expressed their appreciation for giving me the opportunity to go down there, and that was a good conference. I went down there and taught on faith rest drill and promises, much of the material that I've covered here already in the Third John series. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not for... uh, yeah, fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 in the privacy of your own priesthood, uh, admitting your own sins to God the Father in silent prayer to recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can resume our advance in the spiritual life. Let's bow our heads together and open in prayer. Father, we do thank you for the privilege that we have to come together this morning to worship and to fellowship around the teaching of your word. We thank you for the freedom that we continue to possess in this nation that allows us to do that, a freedom that not only allows us to gather together and worship, a freedom that allows us to succeed or perhaps even fail in life, But it is a genuine freedom. Father, we have lost many freedoms, though, in the last 200 years. We pray that we would not lose more, that you would move in this country in such a way that that, uh, there would be a restoration of a desire to know your word, that people would respond to the teaching of your word, that we would not forget the lessons of September 11th. We would not forget some of the other lessons, but... Unfortunately, it looks like that is what is happening. Father, we pray that you would continue to watch over us and protect us because we are still a nation that sends out missionaries. We are still a nation that supports Israel. So, Father, we pray that you would continue to keep us safe, protect our president, give him wisdom, give him strength, give him insight, provide the right information that he needs to be able to make the decisions that he should. Father, we pray for us that we might keep our focus on doctrine, making it the highest priority in our life. 
that we might not forget that part of the reason that we are saved is to advance to spiritual maturity and to glorify you in the angelic conflict. So, Father, we pray now as we study your word that we would be responsive to the challenge of the teaching of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. A couple of other announcements that I forgot to make. Um, one is that Tom Tanucci's back, and after spending, what, nine months over in Kuwait, he's going to give us a report second hour. So you're going to want to stay and hear that. Also, if you haven't been uh, here lately, I've got some catalogs I brought back with me from California from the Institute of Creation Research, and those are out there on the table. And that's especially good if you have kids or there's a lot of children's material, children's videos, things like that in that uh catalog. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're continuing our study on the spiritual gifts. Problem in Corinth is that they were distorting the spiritual gifts, so it's necessary in this chapter for Paul to address it. Actually, he takes three chapters to address the issue, he lays down the foundation of what the spiritual gifts are, their role, their purpose, their function, in the 12th chapter. In the 13th chapter, he focuses on a superior way, and that has application to the way the Corinthians were thinking. They thought that because of a distorted background, which is our subject this morning, that the spiritual gifts were a sign of spirituality. They thought that spiritual gifts indicated a superior relationship with God and a relationship that uh, they would lord over others, that they could do certain things that others couldn't do. And this was a manifestation of their carnality and had nothing whatsoever to do with true spiritual gifts. And in chapter 12... Paul lays down that foundation. Chapter 13, he shows that love is superior and that if you're operating your spiritual gifts in the framework of impersonal love, then in that sense it has benefit and will have benefit to the body of Christ because that's the purpose of the spiritual gifts. And halfway through chapter 13, he starts to apply this to the real underlying problem in Corinth, which is their distortion and abuse of the gift of tongues and some of the other sign gifts. So everything in chapter 12 is merely a preface or introduction to getting into that whole problem of of tongues. And, of course, that is a problem today in our society since the beginning of the 20th century. We've had the resurgence of a what's called the Pentecostal or charismatic movement. And the problem in the Pentecostal and charismatic movement is analogous to the same problem in Corinth. It's that people are coming into church with a pagan background, reinterpreting the Scripture in light of their pagan background, and then the Scripture means something that it doesn't actually mean, and they're uh, lauding these gifts as if they're something special, emphasizing tongues as a sign of a closer relationship with God, a sign of super-spirituality, And what actually happens is that doctrine is destroyed, the Christian life is destroyed, and it's uh, the introduction into Christianity of raw paganism. So that is uh, inserted for us by the Apostle Paul in verse 3. Actually, in verse 2. So let's look at verse 2. You know that when you were pagans... 
you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Now, this verse is very difficult verse to handle in terms of the Greek syntax because it's a complex structure, and I'm not going to take the time to try to break down all the problems for you. The main clause is that they were led astray to these mute. The old King James had dumb, but in political correctness, we don't use dumb to refer to people who cannot speak anymore. That's considered uh, wrong, so they've had to upgrade the uh, translations, although the New King James Version still uses the term uh, dumb. Dumb it does not is not a term in the Scriptures that has uh, inference on a person's IQ. It is an uh, older word for people who were inarticulate, people who did not have the ability to speak at all, who were completely silent. So the emphasis here is on these idols who could not speak. What's the problem going on in Corinth? The problem is tongue speech. So right away, this emphasis on dumb idols has a has a certain uh, twist to it that uh, begins to foreshadow the tongues discussion. But let's look at the details of the passage first of all. He says, "You know," which is a present active indicative of oida, and emphasizes something that they knew from their own experience. It emphasizes something that they would know from their own background, their own experience. So Paul is reminding them of their pagan past. And he says, you know that when you were pagans. So in this sentence, he takes them back to their thought before salvation, before they were Christians. And this is the real issue, both in the ancient Corinthian carnal Corinthian church and today is that people come into the church with all kind, come into Christianity uh, loaded with all kinds of ideas all kinds of opinions all kinds of influences from their past which then begins to influence their understanding of Christianity they come in with sort of a pre-understanding the second thing we see here is this use of the word pagans which is actually the word ethne meaning Gentiles, but here it has the idea of more unbelieving Gentiles. It's not simply that they were Gentiles, because in one sense they're still Gentiles, but as we'll see, because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit in verse 13, there is no longer Jew or Greek or Jew or Gentile, male or female, bond or slave, in the body of Christ. So he is focusing on the fact that when they were unbelievers... And he says, you were led astray to the mute idols. Well, let's take a review of paganism to understand what it is that we're talking about. The term pagan is not a pejorative term. It's not an insulting term. It's a term that simply refers technically to non-Christian thought. It doesn't matter how sophisticated it is. It's not pagan isn't a term that refers to something that's un- unsophisticated or primitive a pagan is, if you look it up in the dictionary, it refers to any system of thought that is not biblical. And, of course, non-biblical thought is going to involve two elements. Two elements. It's going to involve the details of what we think. So, on the one hand, it's the details of what you think. 
in pagan thought, you're going to think about certain things that should be excluded from the thought of a believer. But the details are all put together within the context of a thought structure. So it's not only what we think, but it's also how we think. And I've said it many, many times here. You ought to always remember this. It's hard enough for most people to even think, and it's downright boring and difficult and confusing for people to think about how they think. That is extremely difficult because people are not taught how to think. Our public schools do not teach us the elements of thought. Very few people take the time to go through even a course in logic when they get into high school or in college. But we have to look at these two elements, not just what we think, but how we think. Let me give you a little bit of an illustration similar to what I've used before. Let's say you buy a new house. And you've got this new house. We'll just rough out a house here. You've got a new house, and this house has problems. So you come in, and the real problem, which you don't see, and maybe you had a building engineer come in, and he commented on the fact that there seemed to be some structural problems in the foundation, but you just ignored that. And you had cracks in the walls. and You don't see so much of that around here, but down in down in parts of Texas, when I lived down in Irving, Texas, the soil was such a clay gumbo soil that when it didn't rain for two or three weeks in the summer, which is typical in July and the temperature is 108, 109, 112 every day, it just pulls all that moisture out of that soil. And so that soil begins to shrink, and, of course, the house begins to settle. And then you'll get a heavy rain, and it just sucks up all that moisture and expands again so so the house can really move and houses would get uh, enormous cracks in the in the sheetrock as the as the house moved and settled i mean you you could see a crack in some houses that would go from one wall to the other all the way across across one wall and eventually this would create severe cracks in your foundation and that's why down in Texas you have to water your foundation. You know, you don't just water the plants. You have to water your house. <laughs> Make sure you keep that water content in the soil. Otherwise, you'll, you'll have a lot of uh, cracks in your house. Well, let's say you built a house. You, you bought a house like that, and you went in, and you, you patched up all the sheetrock. You repainted everything. You put down hardwood floor. You tore up the old hardwood floors because they were showing the buckling and everything from this movement. And you put down new hardwood floors, and you covered everything up so now it appeared as if there were no flaws in the house. You still got a problem. And the problem is there's flaws and cracks in the foundation, and that hasn't been addressed. And this is what really happens with most people in the Christian life, is they think of the Christian life as simply external behavioral changes. They think of it in terms of moral changes. They may think of it in terms of a few uh, thought items that they may think differently about some aspects of, of social life. They may think differently about marriage. They may think differently about some elements of politics. They may think differently about their relationship to society and to other people. But that's about as far as it goes. It is a superficial approach to Christianity. And what Scripture teaches is you have to come in and not only tear down the whole structure, 
but you have to tear out this foundation and replace it with an entirely new foundation. It's not just the details, uh, and when it comes to thinking, it's not just the details of what we think that we need to, we need to change. It's the entire structure of how we think. And so much of modern thought is built on the whole concept of evolution. This is one reason that I have spent so much time in Genesis dealing with the foundations in Genesis 1 through 3 is because our thought forms that comes from the culture around us is heavily influenced by relativism that comes out of the idea that there is no God and that everything in our society just developed as a process of... of um, trial and error, and so all of the social structures that we have from marriage to family uh, and on are just the result of people coming up with what seems to work. And so everything is cast within this context. When we think about evolution, we often think about what is taught in the science classroom, what's taught in, in ge a geology course or in a biology course, sometimes a physics course. But you also have evolution as the foundation for your soft sciences, and what I mean by soft sciences is sociology, psychology, uh, much of history. You look at a, because all history is taught within the framework, I mean, if you have a professor that knows anything, he teaches within a framework of a philosophy of history. And that philosophy of history, like any philosophy, is going to have embedded within it a certain view of ultimate reality. An ultimate reality is going to deal with whether there is a God or whether there is no God, whether there is meaning or whether all life has no meaning. Furthermore, in any decent philosophy of history, they have to determine whether or not history is going anywhere or it's just random. And, of course, as a Christian, you know that history is going somewhere. There is a purpose to history, that the history is designed to resolve the angelic conflict, and there will be ultimate resolution at the great white throne judgment. We know that God is doing something in this age in the, in the church. So there are various ideas about uh, ultimate reality that govern how you think about history. And not just history, but you look at uh, other things such as... Uh, economics or politics or law all of these have courses of study related to the philosophy of that particular discipline and so the details of that discipline of thought the details of that discipline of thought are all put together within an overall philosophy. So you have a philosophy of law, philosophy of politics, philosophy of economics, philosophy of history. And all of these deal with some sort of ultimate reality. Now, the technical term for that in philosophy is called metaphysics. But it's ultimate reality. The second thing that always flows from ultimate reality is how do you know anything? How do you know ultimate reality? How do you come to understand anything about life? How does thinking take place? And this area, known as epistemology in philosophy, epistemology, 
this area di directly flows from your understanding of ultimate reality. And so knowledge then, your theory of knowing, becomes crucial in how you come to conclusions, how you make decisions about life. And I'm saying all of this simply to set up and to explain for you that what we see in the modern charismatic Pentecostal movement is the same thing that we saw in the ancient world with the, with the tongues problem there, and that is an epistemology crisis. It is ultimately an epistemology crisis. And I remember going into Dr. Hannah's church history course when I was in my first year at Dallas Seminary, and he talked about this and made this made a comment that the charismatic movement was just a crisis in epistemology and I went epistemology what is that how do we understand that and yet if you don't have the vocabulary you don't have the tools to the mental tools to really understand what's going on and of course we have spent a lot of time studying these things over the years because it is foundational to thought how do we know anything that is foundational to what we think about. And so over the course of time, men have come up with three, I mean mankind has developed three ways of explaining knowledge. Three ways of explaining knowledge in terms of pure human viewpoint. That is, rejecting God, we're going to ignore everything that God says in terms of revelation, and we're going to try to understand ultimate reality and to learn about ultimate reality and then learn about man only on the basis of our own abilities. So this is why I label these top three areas autonomous systems of perception. And that's in direct contrast to divine viewpoint. And this is at the foundation of every area of knowledge. And if you don't understand this, and I try to break this down, I mean, you don't have to understand all the details of this, but if you don't understand this in terms of its basic framework, you're really hamstrung in terms of understanding what's going on in life and what's going on between your own ears. So we have three categories in the chart. The system, the name of the system, the starting point of that system, and the methodology. The first system is rationalism. Now, if you, we think back... Historically, I want to tie this whole thing together in terms of what's going on in ancient Greece and what's going on in the modern world. If we go back to rationalism, rationalism was the thinking of Plato in the ancient world. It's the thinking of Plato. Now, if you put this on a timeline for ancient Greece, this is all B.C., and you go back to the 5th century B.C., which is the period from 300 B.C. to about 400 B.C., this is when you have the rise of classic Greek culture. And your key Greek thinkers are Plato, who actually records much of the thought of his mentor Socrates. You have Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Prior to that... You have the people called the pre-Socratics, and you have Thales, Anaximander, Heraclitus, and Anaximenes. 
These are your pre-Socratics, and they're just beginning to develop the area of thought. What's ultimate reality like? You know, ultimate reality is made up of, of the four elements, fire, water, uh, earth. Um, I forget what the other is. But these are your pre-Socratics. Now, what's going on prior to 400 B.C. in Greek thought is that they have a religious system that everyone pretty much believes explains ultimate reality. And that religious system is what we think of in terms of Greek mythology. The, the stories about Zeus and Hera and Hercules and all the stories of the gods on Mount Olympus. To the pre-5th century B.C. Greeks, that is reality. Their religious system explains who man is. It explains the, it gives them a system of, of uh, morality, what, whatever that was, considering the fact that you have rather immoral gods. But that explains everything. Now, with the rise of philosophy and emphasis on reason, there is an assault on the religious systems. Well, it, they, they begin to show through reason that that doesn't explain reality. So when your religion explains everything, you feel fairly stable. But once religion comes in and starts, I mean, once philosophy comes in and starts questioning those religious assumptions, what happens? The result of that is it produces skepticism. So after your golden age of philosophy here, you develop uh, at the same time this skepticism because um, they don't answer the questions. So the, uh, reason, Plato, emphasis on reason, rationalism, Aristotle, his emphasis on empiricism, assault the religions, religion is wiped out, but ultimately, Platonism and Aristotelianism wipe out, and you end up with skepticism. Now, what's going to happen with skepticism is people still have to have a sense of hope, a sense of value, a sense of meaning in life. So now that reason has shown that religion doesn't work, uh, you, you, you divorce yourself from reason and logic completely, and you jump into... You jump into mysticism, and this set up a cycle that occurred in the ancient world, and it is still occurring today, where you move from a religious system to reason and the emphasis on rationalism and logic to uh, the bankruptcy of those systems to skepticism and mysticism, and we'll see that same pattern that takes place in the modern world. So that gives you kind of a rough idea of the development in Ancient Greece. So rationalism was a first system that's really clearly articulated in Greek thought uh, under Plato. And the starting point is the idea that man has certain innate ideas. And the real hidden assumption here is faith in human ability, that the human mind can, can figure things out on its own without any input from God. And its methodology is a rigorous use of logic and reason. And uh, Plato and Aristotle are using logic and reason to develop everything. Then you have empiricism. Uh, Aristotle rejected the rationalism of Plato, and empiricism builds everything on the idea that man learns everything from sense perceptions. There's the external experiences that he has, and using sight and smell and touch and taste and hearing, he is able to come to knowledge. He is able to learn things. And 
ultimately, this is a faith in human ability to accurately interpret the sense data. So ultimately, everything comes down to faith. It's not faith versus reason. It's not faith versus empiricism. It's actually autonomous reason and autonomous experience versus revelation. And, of course, these two systems, rationalism and empiricism, are often merged together, and both are built on the and what I, on the use of logic and reason. And what I mean by independent use of logic and reason is that it's independent of God. God is excluded from the picture. Revelation is excluded in the picture. God doesn't have anything to say about these details of life. And you'll often hear people make a comment along the lines of, well, God or the Scripture addresses man's basic problems of sin and the spiritual life and salvation, but it doesn't really address all of these other areas. Well, it's not a textbook on geology or biology or philosophy or any of these other things, but it does give us the framework for being able to think in terms of those areas. And then the counter to rationalism and empiricism is mysticism. The previous two systems are built on the use of reason. They're very rational. But mysticism is irrational. It rejects logic and reason. It puts the emphasis not on uh, human thought, reason, or human experience, but I mean, uh, or what you have in terms of external uh, verifiable experience, but on inner private experience, what you feel. What you sense is true. What you think is true. It's a faith in a in human ability to just know that something is true. And you'll run into people like this, and they just say, well, I don't believe things can be that way. Well, why? Give me reasons. Give me a rationale for why you don't think that. I just know it can't be that way. You know, I, you'll find this in a conversation perhaps with somebody over capital punishment. And they'll say, well, I just don't think God would, would, would authorize that. God wouldn't want people to have capital punishment. And on what basis do you say that? I just don't think God would be like that. In other words, it doesn't have anything to do with, with the Bible or reason or experience. It's just this inner conviction that they generate in their own rebellious uh, thought. So these three systems dominate human thought, and every one of us, gravitate to one of these systems from the day we're born as we develop and as we grow and as we learn about life, we're operating on one of these systems because this is the trend in the realm of thought and knowledge of the, of the sin nature. This is the trend of your sin nature because the bent of the sin nature is to try to make life work independently from God. So we're going to make life work independently from God. We've got to have a source of knowledge that is independent of God. We can't go to the Scripture to learn anything. So there's this contrast and conflict between human viewpoint thought and divine viewpoint thought, which is based on revelation, that there is objective, understandable knowable revelation from God, and we learn it. It's not irrational. That's why I don't like this juxtaposition of faith and reason, because if it's faith versus reason, that implies that faith is irrational. And that's modern existentialism and modern postmodernism, that faith is just something private and subjective, and it really doesn't impact all these other areas of thought. 
But we believe in the use of logic and reason, but it's dependent. God gives us the starting point, and we went over this last week and when we were discussing the fall and the week before, that Adam could have, come, could have used empiricism, and he did use empiricism, to discover many things about the nature of the animals and the trees in the garden. And they, they were true with the small t. That's the use of reason. It has a legitimate place. But when it's used independently of God, it can't get the whole picture. There was no possible way that on the basis of independent reason or experience that Adam could have discovered that the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would produce instantaneous spiritual death. That could only come from revelation. Therefore, that information that comes from revelation completely changes everything else. Because to understand the other trees in the garden was to see the other trees, as it's described in the Scripture, in relationship to the tree that was in the middle of the garden. So to understand the oak trees and the pecan trees and the, all the other trees, magnolia trees that were in the garden, you could understand certain things about them that were true, but in terms of how they related to the whole, you really couldn't get a true picture unless you understood certain facts that came from God and God alone. So that's why Revelation provides that umbrella for understanding everything. You have to start with the Word of God. So this is the ultimate problem with paganism, is that paganism rejects divine viewpoint, and paganism operates on rationalism, empiricism, or mysticism. And mysticism can be anything from the superstitious animistic beliefs of uh, primitive tribes in Africa or Australia or anywhere else in the world to the mysticism of some of the most sophisticated uh, uh, proponents of New Age thought in 21st century America. So it's not related to IQ. See, this is the one thing we have to get past, is that none of this is related to a person's IQ. It's not an issue of how smart someone is or how how uh, unlearned someone is or how unsophisticated someone is, because in Romans chapter 1 we're told that they that they were professing to be wise, they became fools. It is a matter of the rejection of God. It's a spiritual issue. It is not a matter of IQ or, or intelligence. So the problem in Corinth is a problem that having come up under a system where they're influenced by not only the the philosophical systems, and in their day you have Stoicism and Epicureanism, which we studied at the beginning of the book. Not only do you have the problem of these philosophical systems, but you also have the problem of mystery religions. And mystery, as you can tell, etymologically is related to mysticism. And mysticism was at the core of all of these mystery religions. And so, having gone through this historical period where they had gone from the religious understanding of the Olympian gods to the philosophical speculations of Plato and Aristotle, the bankruptcy of those philosophical speculations, the rise of skepticism in the second century B.C., and then there's, there, uh, there's always... The response to skepticism of mysticism. This is a pattern that goes through every culture throughout all of history. It's a historical trend 
that because man can't arrive at truth on his own. So every attempt is going to fail. Rationalism and empiricism fail. That produces skepticism. How can we know? We can't know anything. Uh, it produces agnosticism. Well, man can't live consistently on that basis, so he has to have something to explain life. So he goes to something irrational, and that's mysticism. And those of you who are thinking realize we've gone through the same pattern in modern American history. And, in, and, and Western history, let's say, Western civilization. We started off in the, in, uh, after the cross and through the Middle Ages with a religious system, and I'm using that in a very generic term, of Christianity. And whether you're talking about the extremes of, of Roman Catholicism or whatever, there is a system of Christianity and a system of theism that explains that everything is a result of a creator God who created the heavens and the earth. But when you got to the Enlightenment in the 17th century, 1600 to roughly 1800, when you got to the Enlightenment, there is a return to the old philosophical systems of Plato and Aristotle. And Plato is resurrected in the rationalism of Descartes. And Aristotle and his empiricism is resurrected in the thought of uh, Locke, Berkeley, Hume, and other empiricists. And this is pretty much rejected in the bankruptcy of Enlightenment thought is shows up in the skepticism of David Hume and his rejection of truth. This occurs about the end of the uh, 1700s. So this brings in massive uh, skepticism among the intellectuals in Western civilization. And so then what happens? What happens is you get a guy that by the name of Immanuel Kant that came along, and he says, well, you can't know Truth. You can't know, and I'm going to, I've used this illustration before, you have a division between the details of life at the bottom and in the upper story, like a two-story house, in the upper story you have uh, meaning, and that's where God is. God gives meaning to everything, and according to Hume, with skepticism, you can't know anything, so you can't know that upper story in Kant of real meaning. All you're left with is details. This ends up with a real negative uh, depressing approach to knowledge, so you just have to assume these things are true even though you can't prove it. You just have to have a leap of faith as Kierkegaard came up with later on in the 19th century, which is the foundation for modern uh, existentialism and postmodernism. So what happens is you just have to leap to meaning. Now, all of this is taking place. Kant lives at the end of the 1700s, so the 19th century is a century where intellect, the intellectual pressure on Western culture is skepticism on the one hand, and what always follows skepticism? Mysticism. So what begins to develop in the middle 1800s? It's this turn to holiness theology, this emphasis on this, and this emphasis on this private inner experience with God. And holiness theology then gives birth to Pentecostalism in 1900. See, it all it fits the same pattern that you had in the ancient world. And it, the the problem is, is that Christians don't want to think. 
about how they think. They just want some simple little superficial system of uh, a little recipe for life, and they don't want to come in and change the way they think. Now, what undergirds all of this is really the angelic conflict. And this is what Paul brings out in in verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to these dumb idols. And I want you to note that he modifies the term idols many times, or the Scripture modifies the term idols many times with the word dumb or speechless, inability to speak, something like that, which is showing a contrast between the God of the Bible who speaks and these false gods who do not speak. Just look at some of these passages. Psalm 115, 5 and 7. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. In other words, the psalmist is emphasizing the inability of these idols to communicate. Again, in Psalm 135:16, they have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. Isaiah says the same thing related to idols. Isaiah 46, verse 7. They bear it on the shoulder, they carry it, and set it in its place, and it stands. From its place it shall not move, though one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer, nor save him out of his trouble. There's no speech from the idols. Jeremiah 10:5. They are upright like a palm tree, and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, nor can they do any good. Idols are incapable of communicating anything. Uh, Habakkuk 2.18. What profit is the image that its maker should carve it? The molded image, a teacher of lies, that the maker of its mold should trust in it to make mute idols. And then in verse 19, Woe to him who says to wood awake, to silent stone. Notice silent stone. It's mute. It's dumb. Arise, it shall teach. Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, yet in it there is no breath at all. Paul is emphasizing the speechless idol because he's contrasting it to the God we worship, the God of the Scripture who is there and who is not silent. God has spoken to his creatures. He, under, he has spoken in such a way that we can understand it. See, the modern skeptic comes along and says, well, how can we really understand God? See, he's already operating on a, such a screwed-up understanding of knowledge and epistemology that modern man doesn't think you can really understand communication from God. But see, this betrays a very low view of God that God somehow isn't powerful enough or knowledgeable enough to be able to communicate in such a way that man can understand. But not only do we have a problem with idols that are just a block of wood or a block of stone that can't speak and can't hear and can't do anything, what we find in Scripture is that they are representatives of demons. There is, in many cases, a reality behind the idols that is a spiritual reality that brings into focus the angelic conflict and that these idols who represent a religious thought system are merely representing a false religious system, a counterfeit religious system that is being promoted by Satan to distract and to blind the minds of men. In 1 Corinthians 10.20 we read, 
Let this one out. First Corinthians 10.20 we read, Rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I did not want you to have fellowship with the demons. So this was just two chapters previously when Paul was dealing with the issue of things uh, offered to idols. He recognizes that even though these are dumb idols, there is a spiritual reality there. And they may be going into the temple and sacrificing to these demons, but they're really sacrifi- I mean, sacrificing to these idols, but they're really sacrificing to the demons behind the idols. And this is the same idea that you have in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 32:17, the Jews are told that the pagans sacrificed to demons, not to God. They were to gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. So there, Moses makes it clear that even in the Old Testament, idolatry was energized by demons, which empowered these religious systems. Deuteronomy 32.21, God says, They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols, but I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. God is going to judge those who get involved in idolatry because it is involvement with demonism. And the Jews' basic problem in the Old Testament is this problem of syncretism. Now, that's a new word that I've just used now. And syncretism is when you're taking your old pagan ideas and you're just merging them with the new ideas from Christianity. Rather than overhauling that house, all you're doing is you're taking out the old wallpaper and the old carpet, and you're putting in new carpet and new wallpaper. You're, you're taking the old system, and you're just including new ideas from the new system. You're not really thinking like a Christian. You're still thinking like a pagan, but you've just kind of absorbed a few new uh, Christian ideas. And that's how uh, human viewpoint works. It doesn't always just contradict Christianity. Often it's, oh, okay, that's a good idea, too. We'll just suck that in here and absorb that too and see this is what's happening in modern American Christianity we don't want to be uniquely biblical anymore we're just trying to go along and get along and not cause any any problems and that's what happened to the Jews and the result was that when they began to compromise with the idolatry around them that it destroyed their distinctiveness Psalm 10635 but they mingled with the Gentiles and they learned their works. They mingled with the pagans and they learned their works. Before long, it destroyed the uniqueness of the Jews because in verse 36, they served their idols, which became a snare to them, and they even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. So when you begin to compromise and fail to maintain this distinction between divine viewpoint thought and human viewpoint thought, it ultimately can lead to demon influence and uh, strong, hardcore uh, demonism. Now this is all background for understanding the concept of spiritual gifts as we saw in our introduction when we talked about the ascension and session of Christ. And the ascension of Christ set up the giving of gifts and sets the whole context into the angelic conflict. Ephesians 1.20 stated that 
uh, he worked in Christ, the salvation which he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. So Ephesians 1, 20 and 21 tell us that Christ has conquered all of these demonic forces, which means that as believers united with Christ, we too can conquer this kind of demonic thinking. And in essence, all cosmic thought is demonic thinking. One of the interesting things that we must realize is that so much of what goes on today around us is the result of the influence of demons in one way or another. That doesn't mean that you go out there and you're looking for some demon behind every tree. See, this is the era of mysticism as you start trying to identify all the spirits and start uh, getting all caught up in ideas like, oh, I've got some uh, statue that I picked up over in the Far East and I brought it back home and now I've got a demon in my house. Well, that's, that's, not, that's superstition. That's not, that's not biblical. But we must realize that many of the things that are happening in the world today, and especially what we see with our war against Islam and this war against, uh, the, against terrorism, is that what underlies this is a spiritual warfare. When it, it may not be religiously motivated on our side, but it is on their side. And the religion that is dominating all of the, the radicals, and I think, frankly, they're all radical. Anybody who believes in Allah is a radical Islamist, whether they want to admit it or not. And then the whole goal of Islam is to destroy Christianity and Judaism. And when you have bought into a secular sanitized view of life like most Americans have. They just can't comprehend that there are religious systems out there that don't think that way, and they hate us. And what undergirds Islam, and we've done our study on Islam in the past, what undergirds Islam is is satanic doctrine. And in fact, I have stated in the past and continue to believe that Allah is simply another manifestation of Satan. He is not the same God as the God of the Bible. He is not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Allah was originally one of 360 gods in the Arab pantheon. And Muhammad came along and said, well, we don't want to be uh, polytheists anymore. We just want to have one God, so let's get rid of the other 359 and just keep Allah. See, that doesn't make Allah the same God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Allah is the God who wants to destroy the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He hates the Jews. And in Muslim eschatology, in their view of prophecy, when, quote, Jesus comes back, he's going to lead all the, all the Muslims to destroy and kill and murder and execute all of the Jews who still, still survive. And we have to understand that when we look at all the issues right now, and there's so much going on in the press about failures in Iraq, and are we really executing the law on terrorism, and, and maybe all of this is really Americans' fault. It doesn't matter what Americans do. If we had gone into Iraq or we didn't go into Iraq, they're going to hate us. If we had done everything perfectly, if George Bush had done everything without a flaw, the Muslims the radical Muslims would hate us. 
Look at Jesus Christ. He didn't do anything wrong, and they hated him, and they crucified him. So you, this whole idea that we did something wrong, and that is uh, what's motivating all of this hate for America, is just garbage. It's shabby thinking. And because Americans can't think today, they're just getting influenced by the press on this. And we have to realize that what lies beneath all of this is something that is uh, spiritual, and that is this conflict, uh, this angelic conflict and Satan's hatred for Christianity, which influences America still to some degree, and Israel. And it is evangelical Christianity that is the source and cause of our support for the nation Israel. Now let me show you a passage in the Old Testament of how this dynamic works, of spreading these ideas, uh, these false ideas from, from demons. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 22. 1 Kings chapter 22. And this is one of the most bizarre little situations in the Old Testament that I like to go to because it, it really gets us thinking about the spiritual reality that underlies everything. And there's a battle that's about to take place between Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel. And Ahab, who is a pagan idol worshiper, Baal worshiper, who's the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, talks Jehoshaphat, the king of the southern kingdom, to join him in a battle. Now, Jehoshaphat's still got a little uh, sense of truth in him, and he says, well, have you inquired of any prophets? And so uh, Ahab says, well, well, we'll get a prophet in here and find out what God has to say about this. So he gathers the prophets around him and asks a question in verse 6, shall he go up to battle or not? And, of course, all the prophets are just yes men. They say, yeah, go to battle. God's going to be with you. And Jehoshaphat shows a little discernment in verse 7 and says, is there not still a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? And I love this. The king of Israel, so Ahab says to Jehoshaphat, yeah, there's still one man, Micaiah the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire of the Lord. But I hate him. Because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. <laughs> In other words, we've got one guy here that's got some integrity, and he's not a yes man, but I hate talking to him. So they brought uh, Micaiah there, and Micaiah begins to give the, the king a, a, a prophecy. And skip down to uh, verse 17, uh, let me see, verse 19. This is where Micaiah looks behind the scenes, the physical reality, to what's going on in heaven. Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing by on his right hand and on his left. The host of heaven are all the angels, the elect angels, as well as the demons. This is a complete convocation of all of the angelic hosts. And the Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth-Gilead. So one said this and one said that. Verse 21, Then a spirit, now this is a demon, and this, what underlies this is nothing happens in history unless God allows it to happen. He is not the origin of evil. He's not the origin of deception here, but this shows how God uses the demons to accomplish his God's own purposes. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said to him, In what way? So he said, This is the demon, I will go out and be a 
lying spirit. How many? A lying spirit. In the mouth of all his prophets. Now, that's, all, that's the only thing I'm going here for. A spirit, one, in the mouth of what? All his prophets. Hundreds of men. You have one spirit influencing hundreds of false prophets. So somehow these, these demons are able to spread themselves out and promote their whatever their false agenda is through numerous people. And I think that explains how in history you can have a number of, of trends and evils and other things pop up in you know New York and L.A. and here and there and over in Europe and England and wherever, all over at the same time, and there's no no necessary connection between these same ideas. And you see this same kind of thing in the rise of Islam. What is it that caused so many people to turn and follow uh, Muhammad? Despite uh, I'm not discounting the fact that he uh, conquered them militarily, but the rapid advance of Islam over the course of a century was just incredible. And it can only be chalked up to the fact that there must be some help in the demonic realm. So we have to realize that the, that the demons underlie the realities of these false philosophies and these false religious systems. And that leads to the next verse in um, verse 3, where Paul says, Therefore I make known to you, that no one speaking by means of the Spirit of God can say Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul, this, this verse is confusing for a lot of people, and of course very simplistic people think that, well, if you say Jesus is Lord, then that means you must be saved, and if you say Jesus is accursed, then you must not be saved, and you must have a demon. That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is laying down a system of evaluation. He says, no one speaking by the Spirit of God can say that Jesus is accursed. Now, speaking by the Spirit of God, what he's saying is that no one who has been filled by the Spirit can have a bad Christology. See, we've studied this all through 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, that this was a major problem in the ancient world. In modern times, the problem is that we reject the deity of Christ. But what happened in the ancient world is they rejected the humanity of Christ, and Jesus is the name that is associated with the humanity of Christ. If he had said... Uh, Christ is a curse, then he would be talking about Jesus in terms of his messianic role. But he's saying Jesus is a curse. It's, it's a sign that they were rejecting his, his humanity. And it isn't just a simple statement and just saying the statement. It is that this statement is a summation of a, of a belief system. And what he is saying is no one who is speaking by the Holy Spirit, filled with the Spirit, can have a bad Christology. You can be saved and be out of fellowship and be into false doctrine, and you're going to, it's going to show up as a bad view of who Jesus Christ is in terms of his person. And then the second part, the contrast, no one can say Jesus is Lord. That is a recognition that Jesus is God, having a full, complete understanding of, of the and correct understanding of the person and work of Christ, except by the Holy Spirit. You can't get it unless you're in right relationship to the Holy Spirit. So what Paul is laying down here in this whole context of spiritual gifts is that good theology is Christocentric. 
and a good understanding of the spiritual gifts is going to be Christ-centered. And it's going to be based on a, a orthodox view of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, in these verses, what Paul is addressing is the fact that the, the Corinthians have brought with them into their Christian life baggage from their religious past. And that baggage is related to a whole host of religious systems that, that were popular at that time called mystery religions. Mystery religions. And these religious systems had various rites. They all had baptism, baptismal rites, dedication rites. They had sacred meals. Uh, so there were similarities. And one of the similarities is that they involved, they offered salvation. See, this is what the, the uh, ancients wanted, was some sense of salvation, because after going through this, these uh, years of, of skepticism, where you can't know anything, or there aren't any gods, or you can't know anything about them, they want some sense of hope, some sense of salvation. So these mystery religions provided some sense of salvation and identification identification with a God. And you would go out and you would get involved in these ecstatic experiences uh, in various uh, temple locations, and the God would enter into you and speak through you or speak through the priestesses, and that would be a sign of your spirituality and your relationship with God. And there were ecstatic utterances there. So what the, what the um, Corinthians were doing was taking all of that and bringing that to their understanding of the spiritual gifts. And we will begin with a little introduction on these mystery religions when we start up next time before we go on into our basic understanding of the first set of gifts mentioned in verses 8 to 11. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to see the clarity of your word, to realize that we are to not be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our thinking. We need to renew what we think and how we think. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with your word and help us to do that. Father, we also pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you have to do is to put your faith alone in Christ alone. Salvation is not a matter of your own works, of bargaining with God, changing your life, getting involved in some sort of moral overhaul. It is a matter of putting your faith and trust in Christ alone. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.